This is lesson seven in our look at the Revelation. And last week we left off in the middle of looking at these four horsemen. And we decided that this is not a future event, but that the horsemen rode out, so to speak, beginning with the fall of man. Let's review before we continue. I want to add a little more supporting information tonight. You know, if we look at the first century understanding of time, you're going to find that it was divided into two periods, the present evil age and the coming age. We're actually living in the present age. This present evil age has a ruler, and it is the adversary of God, and he's been ruling the world since the fall of Adam. Let's look at a few verses. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Grace to you and shalom from God our Father and our Lord Yeshua the Messiah who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. And here Paul tells us that the age in which he and we live is the present evil age. And he tells us that we've been rescued from this age. In other words, through Yeshua, we have a part in the coming age. The next verse is going to mention both, this age and the one to come. It's Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. This power he exercised in Messiah when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven. He is far above all principality and authority, might and lordship and every name named, not only in this age, but also in the coming one. And so understand that the present age has a ruler, and the ruler is the adversary of God. That age began with the fall of Adam, and it will end with Yeshua's returning and beginning the coming age. And this is going to help us understand these horsemen, I believe. You know, I took the title of these horsemen from a highly respected scholarly commentary. And they describe these horsemen this way. The first four seals, Christ uses evil heavenly forces to inflict trials on the people throughout the church age for either purification or punishment. Okay, so the first thing wrong with this commentary is there is no church age, not at least according to the word of God. There's the present age and there's the coming age. Just the word church is an unfortunate translation and it leads many people astray. But the second problem, as we pointed out last week, is this is not Messiah using evil. This is the adversary of God being what he is, and that is evil. So let's review what we saw in our understanding of these horsemen last week. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Lamb opened the first of seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Okay, so he has a crown and a white horse. And the horseman has a crown of victory. It's not a diadem like would be given to a king, but it's a Stephanos, a crown given to a victor. The adversary of God won a victory over Adam and Chava. And let me say that the adversary's crown was given to him when he was victorious over Adam because Adam and Chava obeyed him and disobeyed God. Adam was the ruler of the earth the servant of God most high. And then they listened to the adversary and disobeyed God 
and his rule, his authority over the earth was taken away and it was given to the adversary. The world had a new ruler once Adam obeyed the adversary. He and the world became his slave and Hasatan took the crown and the rule, hence we have the present evil age. The horse is white, but that has nothing to do with the horseman's purity. It was the condition of the creation when he became ruler. Isaiah speaks of the creation in chapter 11. What it's going to be, he speaks of its restoration. Chapter 11, verse 5. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion and the yearling together. A little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play by a cobra's hole. And a weaned child will put his hand into the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Adonai as the waters cover the sea. It will also come about in that day that the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will seek him and his resting place will be glorious. You see, this is the condition of God's creation at the beginning. There was no death. There was harmony and peace in the creation until the fall. And so we decided that this is not the Messiah, as some think. This is the adversary of God, and he's sent out, and he's bent on conquest. And this is the same spirit that ruled Pharaoh, the same spirit behind Alexander the Great, the same spirit behind the Caesars of Rome, the dictators of the world like Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot. This ruler are those who went out to subjugate the world and God's people, conquer and subjugate the people of God. Now the next horse rider. Then came another horse out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And so if we look back at the next major event in the Bible after the sin of Adam in the garden, it's that Adam and Chava have two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain slays Abel. He murders his brother. And white goes to red. No more innocence in the world, folks. He takes peace from the creation. It says he's given power to take peace from the earth. And by the time we get to Noah, we're told that the entire earth is filled with violence. I think the best definition that I've heard came from a rabbi. And he said this. That was the ruthless outrage of the strong upon the weak. And you know something? There's nothing new under the sun because we can see this throughout the world today still. This is not something that's going to happen. Since Adam's sin, there has never been peace on the earth since that day. There's always been brother killing brother, wars and rumors of wars. Verse 5 says, I looked and before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wage and three quarts of barley for a day's wage and do not damage the oil and the wine. Again, this is nothing new. We don't have to wait for this to happen. It's the way things are right now. A quart of wheat for a day's wage and three quarts of barley for a day's wage. This anciently is what a day's wage would buy. 
it's what buys a day's sustenance. If you were alone, no family, you were single, you could afford probably a quart of wheat for a day's wage. However, if you had a family, you're going to opt for the three quarts of barley, which was cheaper because for the rich, it was actually considered animal feed. They wouldn't even eat it. If we look at today, what you make in this life is what it takes to sustain you through life. All but a very few live paycheck to paycheck, and they die with literally nothing. This is the way of life under the ruler of this age. You don't have to wait for anything to happen. These horsemen tell us how things are through this age under Hasatan's rule. And where it says, do not damage the oil and the wine, Craig Keener says this in his commentary. Ancient Mediterranean warfare included destroying standing crops in the fields, but not the vines and the olive trees. Destruction of the vines and the olive trees would produce long-range devastation of local economies. And so this probably speaks of the rich who are over the poor. But let's look at this last horseman that we didn't get a chance to look at last week. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, and its rider was named Death and Hades. He was following close behind him. They were given power over one-fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by wild beasts of the earth. Death and Hades is given power over a fourth of the world's inhabitants, or fourth of the world's population. And now, I don't know about you, but when I read this first, I thought, wow, this writer is going to kill a fourth of the world's population. This must be what we're going to read about in the next seven years that are covered by the book of Revelation. Well, folks, I hate to tell you, but this is happening. This happens in every generation. If you take those in the world whose lives are being cut short by the violence of war, by hunger, by disease, you're going to come up with about a quarter of the world's population dies early, an early death. In this country, millions don't even make it out of the womb. But let's look at a few of these horrendous events, some of the more modern ones. You know, the Civil War, 850,000 deaths. And then World War I, 8,500,000 deaths. Hitler, 6 million of our Jewish people. And that's just the Jewish people. There were another 42 million people killed in that war. Stalin's 20 million Soviet citizens, males, tens of millions of political enemies, and then there's the peasant famines, victims, Pol Pot, 2 million Cambodians, Interhamkwe's killing of a million Tutsi Rwandans, the millions of lives wasted during the apartheid's 47-year reign. They're dying today in China and Africa through warring factions. We haven't even begun to speak of those dying of disease. In 1918, the pandemic took 50 million lives worldwide. The starvation in Africa and other parts of the world, and this is just a few of the things. If you look way back to the Black Death, 200 million died. And if you count everyone who does not die a death of old age, you're going to see that this is probably very close. You know, up until the 1900s, you know what the average lifespan was? 45 for a white man, much less if you were black. And so this isn't something that we're waiting to happen. It's only recently that we've reached 70 years as the average lifespan. 
And even today, with life expectancies on the rise, death, war, famine, disease, men's cruelty to men, think of how many die before their time. And as I said, in this country, millions don't even make it out of the womb. In China, when Christian missionaries arrived in China, they witnessed and reported newborn female babies being thrown into rivers or just left in dumps. And this wasn't anything new. In the Roman era, they just took them out and left them in a field. And this continued even in China up until the 19th century and beyond with the one-child rule in China. But this is the world's condition under the rule of the adversary. And even though he's under restraint by God, notice that he's only given so much power. If he had his way, it would probably be much worse without God's restraint. Verse 9 says that he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And here we're seeing the result of these writers. These are the righteous that are slain during this time. And so we know that this isn't speaking of the judgment of God that we're going to read about as we go through the book of Revelation. Because we looked at the words of Abraham last week and we learned that Adonai does not slay the righteous with the wicked. He's the judge, and he does not treat the righteous and the wicked alike because that would not be judgment. He judges between them. And notice here this week, they're under the altar. Last week we read they were under the throne of God. We see the same thing in Jewish tradition. David Stern, of blessed memory, wrote in his commentary, he says this, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. The Holy One, blessed be he, took the soul of Moses and stored it under the throne of glory. Not only the soul of Moses is stored under the throne of glory, but the souls of the righteous are also there. Rabbi Akiva used to say, whoever is buried beneath the altar, it is as though he was buried beneath the throne of glory. And so understand that it really says the same thing. And then verse 10 says, they called in a loud voice, how long? Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Okay, so we just talked about Cain slain Abel. What did Abel's blood do? Remember what it said? It says he cried out. And what do they cry out for? They cry out for vindication. During this time, the adversary's favorite target is the people of God, those who witness God to the world. He loves to take those people out. And the souls are beneath the altar crying out to God for vindication. And notice it says, how long? I want to look at a couple examples of this phrase in Scripture. Psalm 79 verse 5 says, How long, Adonai, will you be angry? forever will your jealousy keep blazing like a fire and then in Habakkuk it also says how long Adonai have I cried for help yet you do not hear I cry out to you violence yet you do not deliver and what we find about this phrase how long is it's not just a question but it's an appeal for God to respond quickly and that's what we see in these prayers unfortunately for them they are told to wait until the full number has been reached. And I want you to see that we have gone from the fall of Adam and the rider on the white horse 
riding out, bent on conquest, through the age. And here, the age is still not over, but the souls of the righteous are being told to wait a little longer. Now, with the fifth seal, the full number of saints has still not been accomplished. They are told to wait a little longer until the full number can be complete. And we're still waiting a little longer. (laughs) A little longer to God seems like eternity to us. Remember, the scroll was full. It was written on both sides. And so we're waiting until the full number. And we looked at this passage in the book of Enoch, which again is not scripture, but it was read by the first century believers. And so it helps us kind of understand their thoughts. Chapter 47, verse 3. In those days I saw him, the antecedent of time, while he was sitting upon the throne of his glory. And the scroll of the living ones were opened before him and all his power in heaven above, and his escort stood before him. The hearts of the holy ones are filled with joy because the number of the righteous has been offered, the prayers of the righteous ones have been heard, the blood of the righteous has been admitted before the Lord of the spirits. And so we kind of see the same thought in the book of Enoch, that the fullness of the righteous has to be admitted. And so we could say the fullness of the lives of the righteous, okay? And we see this thought in Jewish tradition again. I put up another one here for you. Rabbi Asi said, Messiah, son of David, will not come until the souls of the treasury of souls have been used up, as it is said. The spirit that is before me will enwrap mankind when all the souls I have made have been used up. So here we have under the altar the souls of those who have been slain, because of their testimony for God and their crying out to God for vindication, for him to sanctify his name. And he says, wait a little longer. And so understand that we are not waiting for these horsemen to ride out. This has happened because, you know, in this country in particular, we're kind of like that proverbial frog in the pan of water on the stove with the heat turned on. We just don't really think about all of these things. We're living in times such as this. These things have been released. Now we're going to read on in chapter 6 and verse 12. And I watched as the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from the fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes and generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand it? And so now... Here we're coming to the end of this age, the day of Adonai, the day of the Lord. And now we speak of judgment, the wrath of God that's going to be poured out. And I want you to see something. The wrath of God hasn't been poured out until here. And so, again, we're just, when we read those passages about the horsemen, we're looking at the condition in this present evil age. And also, do you see who the wrath of God is poured out upon when it's poured out? Not the people of God, but the rulers of the age. And we're going to see this in the book of Enoch as well. Again, not scripture, but it helps us understand what they understood in the first century. 
My eyes saw there a deep valley with a wide mouth, and all those who dwell upon the earth, the sea and the islands, shall bring to it gifts, presents, and tributes. Yet this deep valley shall not become full. They shall fill the criminal deeds of their hands and eat the produce of the crime which the sinners toil for. Sinners shall be destroyed from before the face of the Lord of the spirits. They shall perish eternally, standing before the face of his earth. So I saw all the angels of the plague cooperating and preparing all the chains of Satan. It goes on to say, And I asked the angel of peace who was going with me, For whom are they preparing these chains? And he answered me, They prepare these for the kings and potentates of this earth in order that they may be destroyed thereby. After this, the righteous and the elect one will reveal the house of his congregation. From that time, they shall not be hindered in the name of the Lord of the spirits. And these mountains shall become flat like the earth in the presence of his righteousness. And the hills shall become like a fountain of water. And the righteous one shall have rest from the oppression of the sinners. Always, you know, when we read of the judgment of God, the righteous are spared because the ancients knew that God doesn't treat the righteous and the wicked of like because that would not be judgment. And that's how we know that this chapter that we've read about is how things are under the rule of the adversary of God, the human condition after the fall. And we know this because people are being martyred. And next week, I'm going to go through this passage again. We're going to identify some of these things in verses 12 through 17, like the sky being rolled up and the mountains being removed. But this week, I'm making what I feel is a critical point. And so we're going to just read through these briefly. And we're going to begin in chapter 7, verse 1 now. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels who were permitted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Now I heard the number of those marked with the seal, 144,000 from every tribe of B'nai Israel. And so there are 144,000 of B'nai or children of the tribes of Israel who are marked with the seal. And here's how they're numbered. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Zebulun, from the tribe of Joseph, and from the tribe of Benjamin, all 12,000 each. And so before the trumpets sound, before the day of the wrath begins, the winds are held back until the righteous are sealed. And again, we see that God's wrath is not poured out on the righteous. Remember, we are to be blessed by this book. It was given to those who are suffering persecution and the promise of more despair would not be a blessing. But if you were under persecution and God showed you that it was coming to an end and you were going to be sealed and protected during this time, 
Even if you were martyred during this time, like the souls under the altar, you will be resurrected and you will be kept under the throne of God. And that would be a blessing. Now, there are 144,000 from B'nai Israel that are sealed. And what does that mean, to have the seal of God on your forehead? Well, we learn a bit more if we go to chapter 14 about this seal in verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so what we learn here is that the seal is the name of the Father and the Lamb that's on their foreheads. And so the seal is the name of God and the Lamb. And I wonder if it's going to have the vowels in the name ending the argument of how it's pronounced. Just kidding. But seriously, what is this mark and the name that's on his forehead? Well, let's look at what would come to the first century person's mind when he heard the seal and the name of God on the forehead. And I think what would come to their mind is when the devout pray, they wear what are called phylacteries, and it's in response to a command in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These are the commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And so how to fulfill this commandment, they would wear a box strapped to their foreheads and in the box would be scripture and also on the box would be a sheen. And I put a picture up here for you. You can see it on the box at the forefront. It has the letter sheen and it's symbolic for the name of God. And so as they would pray, they would literally have God's name on their forehead. And here's another picture. They would also have it on their hands because the way the straps are tied also make a sheen on the hand. And you all know what a mezuzah is, right? Well, if you don't know what a mezuzah is, it's a box with the word of God in it that you put on your doorpost of your home and the box has to have a sheen on it. The name of God. And you can see one if you don't know what they are when you go out the door this evening of the fellowship hall, there's one on the doorpost. Okay, when the high priest would bless the people, Numbers chapter 6, verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. And when the priests would say this blessing, they would do this. They would put God's name on the people. The priest would raise his hands over the people and make this shin over the people. Now we get a great picture of this in the Gospels. Luke chapter 24. And when they had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And I think this is a fantastic shadow of the 144,000 having God's name placed on them. The seal will be on their foreheads 
and they will be sealed and come to know Messiah before those trumpets begin to sound. Now notice something else here. There's some problems with the way the names of the tribes are listed. First and foremost, we don't see the tribe of Dan. It's missing. And there's a tradition within Judaism that the wicked one is going to come from Dan. We can see this in another apocalyptic writing, and I'll read it for you. The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, written about 100 B.C., where Dan is told, In the last days you will depart from the Lord, for I have read the book of Enoch the righteous, that your prince is Satan. Another thing about Dan, if you go to Israel, you, you go to the north to where the city of Dan was, and Jeroboam actually made a temple there and altars there that faced away from Jerusalem. He made a golden calf and developed a system of worship that strayed from what God had commanded. So listen to this midrash again about Dan. The standard of the camp of Dan is to be in the north side, thusly the north. From there comes darkness, since the sun is in the south. Why is this relevant to Dan? Because Dan darkened the world by idolatry. For King Jeroboam made two calves of gold, and idolatry is darkness. As it is said, their works are in the dark. Jeroboam went all about Israel, but they would not receive his teaching except for the tribe of Dan. As it is said, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and set the one in Dan. This is why the Holy One commanded that Dan should set up his camp in the north. And so by tradition, there's supposed to be a wicked one coming out of Dan. But also know that Ephraim is missing. Joseph is in his place. And why is he missing? Well, it could be a couple of things. It could be just put Joseph there instead of Ephraim. Or it could be for the same reason that Dan is left out. It could be Ephraim is left out because it was Jeroboam that actually led Dan and Israel astray. And he was from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim in scripture is given credit for much waywardness. Okay, so what does it mean to be one of the 44,000? Well, we could stand up here for the next whole Arab Shabbat and talk of the opinions of what it means to be one of these 144,000. Just a few of the opinions include the church, the visible remnant of the church. Another is Messianic Jews, the remnant of Israel. Another is the redeemed at the start of the day of the Lord. So those are but a few. Let me tell you what we do know about. Various denominations revolve around this 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. If we look at Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually taught that all of their followers were the 144,000. And you know, that worked really well. It helped them uh, get members. But when their numbers grew past 144,000, it wasn't so attractive anymore. But the point is this. It has to be a blessing. And it has to be a blessing to John. And I'm sure his heart cry would be much the same of that of Paul for his people. For me, there is just no other opinion than these are the Jewish people. The tribes of Israel have the mark of the Lamb of God, so they must be those who have found Yeshua. This vision may represent an end-time army prepared for spiritual battle. They're, they're sealed. They have God's name on their foreheads, telling me that they are an army of prayer and spiritual warriors, Jewish people. Yes, Messianic Jews. 
There's another interesting theory I think that's important. And it's going to come up later in chapter 12 when we look at chapter 12. 12,000 is not an exact number of people, but it represents a fullness of people. 12 is fullness. There are 12 tribes, 12 disciples. The elders in Israel were two units of 12 to make 24. There, A thousand also represents a full number. And so we're going to get a glimpse in chapter 14, verse 1 through 5. And let me read this for you. Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 that had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard the sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like the peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, and they are blameless. And notice that it says that this 144,000 are the first fruits of God and the Lamb. And so they represent actually a larger number of people. The full number represents an even larger group. And uh, I'm going to read a tradition of a messianic jew from the late 1800s before yeshua redeemed him he was a hasidic jew so he was well learned yachiel lichtenstein offers an intriguing explanation the offering of the first fruits is normally 150th mishnah trumat 4-3 which here comes to 144,000. romans 11 verse 16 paul remarks that if the first fruits is holy, the whole loaf is holy. Thus the meaning is that the first fruits of Israel, the 144,000 Messianic Jews who put their trust in Yeshua is holy. Then the whole loaf of Israel is holy. Therefore, Paul continues in this way, all Israel will be saved. So if these are the first fruits, then they represent a larger number of people coming out of this period of time and more Jewish people will be sealed. In other words, according to Yahil, if we were to take this literally, we would take the 144,000 times 50, because that is 150th, and we would come up with 7,200,000. And I want you to remember that when we get to chapter 12. And so we have a large number, and really it represents the fullness of our Jewish people. And uh, as we go back to chapter 7, we're going to find ourselves back where we started in chapter 6. After the sealing of the 144,000 Messianic Jews, I want you to know, if you're not part of that 144,000, you're going to be in good shape. Let's read. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing robes of white, holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so things are good for those who put their trust in God. And notice it says they have palm branches in their hands. That's going to refer to 
Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want you to know, at the Feast of Tabernacles, they're going to wave palm branches, and they're going to plead. They're going to say, Oh, Lord, save now. Here, it would seem that the pleading is over as they say salvation belongs to our God and the Lamb because they have been saved. Now, I want to skip down to verse 13 for one final point because I think this is important and one of the reasons I ran through this so fast. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so now we're going to go back to these verses next week and we're going to look at them more closely because we really did skim over this stuff. We want to know what some of these things represent. But I want to get to this multitude. Those who came out, it says, of the great tribulation and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But who are these folks? This is where we get our term for the seven years that we're going to read about in the book of Revelation. We call this period the tribulation, the great tribulation. Daniel speaks of a time of trouble in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of trouble such as never occurred since the beginning of the nation until then. But at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of life will be delivered. So this passage in Jeremiah 30 is where we get the phrase, the time of Jacob's trouble. And Revelation, where it says the great tribulation, we take this to mean, most people, a lot of people anyway, take this to mean the next seven years are the great tribulation. But I want you to consider this. Are there going to be a great multitude of righteous people come out of the next seven years that we're going to talk about as we look at the judgment of God on the earth? This time we call the tribulation. Some call it the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, I can tell you there are not going to be many people from the nations that find Messiah during that time and come out of the great tribulation if, if that is the seven-year period. The earth is going to become more and more wicked. We see it happening now. And we're told that even after the horror that we read about with the trumpet blasts, it says at the end, still they did not repent. Even after the absolute destruction of the bowls of the wrath of God, it says, and still they did not repent. And so understand this. There are not going to be a multitude that no one can count coming out of the great tribulation if it is the seven years. The great tribulation is not that seven years that we're going to look at. We're living in it. This is the great tribulation. They have to be the folks coming out of the great tribulation, this last 6,000 years of tribulation in the world that has just gone through. The time that we just looked at is the great tribulation and they are with the Lamb, and the tribulation for the people of God is the time in which we live. Dear friend, I started this message by telling you that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And if we're talking about the tribulation that's coming, most of what we're going to read about is the judgment of God. 
and is not going to touch the righteous but the wicked. Yes, we're going to see if some righteous people die during this time, but it's not going to be this multitude that no one can count. It has to be the righteous of the last 6,000 years at the start of the day of the Lord. It will be those who have trusted and have been witnesses for Adonai and for Messiah from Adam until the end. They are the people of God who will be given robes of white. And so next week what we're going to do is we're going to go back over these chapters and we're going to look at some of these things that are talked about and uh, understand what the first century believers would have understood when things like the sky was rolled up like a scroll and so forth. And so we'll be back this way next week.